We're back! Uh, coming up this week on East Screen, West Screen, me and Paul catch up on some Hong Kong films. We talk about Terrence House with a new season, the Disney Fox merger deal, and for our films this week, I talk about Somewhere Beyond the Mist, and Paul will talk about Star Wars The Last Jedi. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk on a distant island. It's the last Jedi himself, Mr. Kevin Ma. Now, Paul, come on. We're both Jedi. Well, is it Jedi? Is Jedi the plural? What is the plural of Jedi? I think it's still Jedi, right? Oh, in that case, and we're all Jedi. Yeah, yeah. Me and you both Jedi, <laughs> Jedi of the uh, the podcast world. Yeah. Yeah, except when you go over to to the Kowloon side, that's known as the dark side, right? <laughs> I, w- I would say new territories, maybe. <laughs> Sorry, no offense to. Uh, I'm not trying to throw shade at your old hood, Pa. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, oh my God, it's been a while. It's been a while. It's, it's been, been uh, since like October since we've talked. Um, that's all due in part to me, life getting in the way, and. Um, a life creep, as they call it in some places, um, and just trying to get a lot of real-life stuff done. And now we have a chance to sit down and actually talk about a movie, because I haven't been able to get out and see anything um, in the actual cinema of late. There has not been any big screenings. Uh, Chasing the Dragon, which we talked about, was like the last um, Hong Kong screening that they had here, uh, showing in Miami, so I wasn't able to get out to see any current stuff, unfortunately. And the big stuff, even, I've missed. Like, uh, I haven't seen Justice League, still not seen Thor, but I did manage to sneak away. Uh, my wife was very generous and let me sneak away for a couple hours to watch the new Star Wars. Um, and that's due in part because she's not all that keen on Star Wars, so she's okay <laughs> with me watching that by myself and catching up later with it, maybe on video. But she really digs the Marvel movies and the Justice League stuff, and... Um, she wants to watch that with me, so I decided to wait on those, um, and so I'll catch up on those eventually. But yes, here we are, ready and willing to talk about movies once again, and you've been busy yourself, sir. Oh my god, just like crazy, because from the, right after we did, I think, Blade Runner, and then, you know, the week after that, I went to Tokyo, and I watched about 20 movies there, and then I came back to Hong Kong, and... Then I did um, uh, go um, no the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival, and then I went off to Taiwan before the HKAFF even ended. I ran off to Taiwan to to do Golden Horse, uh, and then that was another like twenty five movies. In fact, I do I had to do my Justice League viewing in Taiwan because I didn't I couldn't have I didn't have time in Hong Kong to do it. Um, and then of course I came back, and then I was just been you know it's just been an avalanche of jobs. In fact, you look at Asia and cinema these days um the only reason i've been updating is because i've some i had some film festival commitments for example i was a 
a media partner with the Poland's Five Flavors Festival, and you know I got in touch with some people in Laos, Prabang, 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 yeah, in Laos. Um, I did some report. I got one, right, one more, um, and yeah, and it's just been no no downtime whatsoever. It's just been so much work. And if ever after we record, I probably have to go sit down and and keep working. It's just been that kind of year. Yeah, well, it's good to be busy. Better to be busy than not, uh, I always like to say. And um, in, in despite the fact that I haven't actually gotten out to see uh, any new movies in the, the cinemas, especially where Hong Kong's concerned, I was very pleasantly surprised to see some of the more contemporary current movies from 2017 start to make their appearance on some streaming platforms such as Netflix. Um, most recently I've watched um, uh, God of War, um, which I think uh, popped up there a couple weeks back. And um, you know, just the other day I watched This Is Not What I Expected. And I was not expecting. I actually had that movie um, <laughs> in my cart over on Yes Asia um, <laughs> waiting for my next purchase. And then I, I turn on Netflix one morning. And Netflix, I love them, but I hate them because their interface is so janky. Um, for whatever reason, just kind of out of the blue, um, I don't know if it's because I watched, um, we watched this Chinese cartoon last Friday um, from China, although it was dubbed in English called The Guardian Brothers, uh, which is great, by the way. If you're like, if you like, you know, animation, sort of kung fu panda style, um, not, I mean, it's not really DreamWorks or Pixar quality, but it's still really good. It's got a unique style all its own, and it's a nice little story. It's up on Netflix. You can catch it. Is this um, the violent one? Is this a really violent one? No, it's not violent. It's, um, it's uh you know it basically uh two guardian spirits come down and like help a little girl and her mom protect their okay, tea house yeah uh, i think i think it's from last yeah. year um out of china and um but it's really cute really fun um good for the little ones to watch and the the dubbing's really bad they got some big names like edward norton and meryl streep and uh, what the <laughs> yeah, a couple others really weird choices um, to narrate to do the voices for these Chinese characters. I guess you'd say it's animation, but it doesn't matter. But even so, you'd think they would have maybe you know gone to. I think Randall Park was the only um, Asian actor I think who does some voice work. Mel Brooks does some voice work in it for goodness sake. Um, but um, it, it's fun and it's it's easily accessible for kids. So if you got little ones, um, do check that out. But I'd, I guess watching that somehow prompted Netflix to say, give me a list when I opened it one morning, said Mandarin movies and TV dramas. And I was like, huh. And so I'm just like scrolling through that list and I saw uh, this is not what I expected. And I immediately added it to my um, to my playlist and uh, we watched it the next day. But it's that list has not since appeared on my Netflix any of my Netflix queues anymore. <laughs> so it's like they randomly just kind of throw stuff out there. And if you want to go back and find things again, it's like almost impossible because you can't like save the entire list. And um, they had some other stuff, I think like um, a swordsman of my own from a couple years before and some other stuff. But that was the only one from 2017 that I saw in there. So I bookmarked that immediately. But yeah, it's it's nice to see some of this more current stuff popping up. I wish they would get more um, between that and iTunes, um, I've been able to catch up on some stuff. I watched um, The Sinking, uh, The Capsule City, is it called? Or The Sinking City? Cap the sink, the Capsule sinking Odyssey. Cap 
The Sinking City, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and we watched that the other night on iTunes, and then I think, uh, uh, what's his name, um, All My Goddess is up there on iTunes as well, so that... That's that. That's due for a watch. Um, I was I was gonna watch it last night, but then I was like, ah, let me put it off. Uh, I got some other stuff to do. Um, but there's stuff that's out there from 2017, and it's nice to see more and more of it popping up. Yeah. So did you like? So do you want to talk about um, some of the films that you you've been seeing recently? You want to talk? So, I mean, we've talked about it on a show, but yeah. I mean, you should totally talk about some of these films. Well, I mean, I. Um, I was really looking forward to The Sinking City because that's really such a contemporary, current political issue with regard to housing and living standards and stuff. And, you know, especially having family, my, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law, who are young, the young generation really facing those problems, right? And they, they have no real way to to overcome them. I was a little... I mean, it's a good movie. It's definitely worth watching, especially if you're in with the current contemporary goings-on in Hong Kong, I just expected it was going to be a little bit funnier at times. Um, it, it, it Maybe my expectations were a little bit too high, but it was, I mean, good performances by everybody, um, and it's really just one of those things that I think if you're really an outsider, it may be hard to approach um, because it's dealing with such very specific issues sometimes. But you've got characters like Bob Lamb, kind of being Bob Lamb at times. And he's good. I mean, it's not like Lucky Fat Man or anything. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, they use him really well in it. Um, there's some there's some jokes that they allude to at times, you know, with the dog and stuff <laughs> that are like, oh, really? They're really going there? But, um, you know, a lot of it is very, you know, kind of... It almost feels like a New Year movie in some ways at times because it's like, oh, they're going to, you know, they've got this massive windfall that's going to save, gonna save them. And then at the end, it doesn't go in that direction because it kind of falls apart. But it's it's definitely one worth watching. Um, God of War, I really liked mostly for the sync sound for the Japanese actors. Um, I thought that that was great that they, that they did that, um, you know, because I was expecting it to kind of be like, okay, a mainland, smaller mainland production, and they're going to dub everybody in. And they didn't. So uh, that alone scored some extra points with me. And I liked um, I liked the action, and I liked uh, the, the general story that was being told. Um, nice to see Samo there, but as I think you said in your review, he's only in it for like a brief moment. He's not really in the film um, all that much. Um, and I, you know, I think they, for the scale of what they were working with in the budget, um, I think they pulled it off, uh, pretty nicely. And then, uh, this is not what I expected. I, we watched the other night and I really loved that. Um, which is, I mean, is that a Hong Kong movie? It's, it's not listed on Hong Kong movie database, which I find is weird because it's like, you know, Derek Hoy is directing and I, you know, you've got mostly a mainland cast, but you've got uh, Kaneshiro in there in the lead. Um, would, does that qualify in Hong Kong film critics as a Hong Kong movie or no? Uh, according to Hong Kong Film Awards, um, eligibility because it is produced by Peter Chan's company. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and of course Hong Kong director. So I think, I'm not, yeah, so I think it does qualify for the Hong Kong Film Awards. Yeah. yeah actually it does. Yeah, yeah. Um, good story. I mean, it's in some ways I, I would, I kept thinking of parallels to, the Nick Tse movie, Cook Up a Storm, because it's all about, like, 
food and cooking. And, and this one I think is far more enjoyable. It's a better story. I enjoyed the characters and their chemistry more. Um, and it's, it's well, the question is, Paul, did you try making instant noodles the Kaneshiro way? I, you know, I, I was tempted. We had just eaten dinner when we sat down and I was like, eh, if I hadn't eaten, I think I'd be cooking some instant noodles right now. Uh, did you try? Did it work? Um, I tried it once and then, and then, I, and then it was fine, but I want to try it again, but I've forgotten the recipe. Yeah. It's a, it's a very you meticulous, write it down for me, very meticulous. You have to write it down for me. Yeah. Please write um, it down for me. If you have a chance. Because you but, have Netflix. You have it on Netflix. I don't have it on Netflix. So if you have a chance, write it down for yeah. me. <laughs> so it's out there and it's definitely one, I think, in, in the scope of what I've seen so far and um, for this year, and there's still a lot I haven't seen, um, but it's definitely in in the higher spectrum of ones that I really liked. So I'd say if you're not averse to romantic comedies, um, it's one to see. And I mean, it doesn't do anything really brilliantly new it's very still very much a cinderella kind of story but um i i did i did like the characterizations and i did like the, the chemistry even though they've got this massive gap in age i think they worked well together on screen um so yeah that's it for me and and kind of the things that i've been catching up on and uh there's still a lot more that i need to to get out and see, and hopefully some of that will make its way to streaming platforms. It'll save me on some shipping costs for some physical media. <clears throat> um, but once that happens, we'll come back and play some more catch-up. For now, why don't we uh, get over into the news desk with Kevin and this week's news. Oh, here on the news desk? Uh, well, I mean... Since we're just coming back, let's let's kind of um, take our time with the news and and you know just sort of throw away stuff that we've already missed. Um, but you know the first big news for at least the two of us is the new season of Terrace House is back. Yes, it's back. It's already started actually in Japan. I think it started on the nineteenth. Um, Yesterday, I think yeah. yeah, a couple of days ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as you brilliantly posted over on social media uh, this year, it's called <laughs> Boys and Girls in the Onsen, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no. It's um, um, the title is uh, what? Opening new doors, I think, is the opening title. new doors. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're back in Japan. I'm so happy. I think th didn't we do this whole? Is it just me? Or was it with you or with my friend that? Because me and my best friend are both really huge fans of the show. He's Japanese, and uh, and I'm you know. I speak some Japanese, but you know, I was the one who got him on the show, and we're both we both have a competition of who's going to finish the season first. But anyway, you know, we I think we both share that we thought that Aloha State wasn't as good as the original ones, and and we were hoping they would go back to uh, to 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 Japan, and uh, they did it. And I guess that they would they would find some other tourist spots instead of you know going back to Tokyo, and they chose Kaluizawa, which is um a area an area in Japan that is famous for of course well one lavender and two the hot springs yeah i think this so, is going to make an interesting location and there's um there's an article article written on this on the verge that i'll post in the show notes and i've i've already posted it up on social media the um the the release date internationally so for those of us um overseas in the states who are going to watch this on netflix proper um, is not until March 13th. So even though they're already currently showing as of this week in Japan, uh, we have to wait a couple months, which is a bummer. But um, the article actually gets into a little bit of the rationale uh, as to why, and the Netflix position is 
in part that they feel that the overseas viewers are used to big packages in terms of, you know, they don't release stuff piecemeal like, say, Hulu does or regular network TV in a week-by-week -week format. So they wait for... What do we do in Japan? Yeah. They wait for the acclamation so that then they can release it. Um, I don't know, you know, and the, the author of the article says he doesn't know if he really buys into that rationale. And, I, I mean, I could very easily watch it week to week um, if I could be current, if they would release it that way. I'd, I'd have no problem with that uh, as a big fan. But, uh, you know, they are the distributors, and they get to make the decision with their Japanese partner um, on how this goes. But uh, the, I don't know if you can confirm this or not, Kevin, but the the guy writing the article, it sounded like he, was at the, he or she was at the press conference in Japan that they were having for this and seemed to relate the fact that in Japan it's already English subtitles. Yeah. So it's not a case of them having to get the episodes and then subtitle them over time before they release them either. It's like they could, this is ready to go now for, you know, people who need the English subtitles. It's just a case of that the, distribu the distribution deal is that it's not until March 13th. Well, yeah, uh, it is subtitled in, Jap uh, in, in English in Japan because when we went to Japan in august and i remember i was telling you that oh i really have to finish terrace house because you know there's the last part um and yeah it was all subtitled in 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 english um but i think the difference is that there might be some kind of broadcast deal because you know uh fuji television which co-produces the show actually airs uh, a, a slightly shortened version of each episode because of you know advertising they have to cut it a little bit by about six minutes or so um and they actually air these episodes on tv about a month after they make it on netflix um so i wonder yes they tell they tell um the journalists or the, the press that yeah overseas viewers are more used to binge watching but then what about uh in fact there's a new show uh another show they're doing with uh fuji television called love wagon Love Wagon is a resurrection of a old reality show that Fuji Television did back about ten a decade ago. Um, it was huge at the time; it ran for quite a few years. And and that show, it there was a, about three four week delay before it made it to the rest of Asia. I mean, I, I, according to uh, for my friend, apparently you guys in the U.S. don't have that show yet, but it's also a Netflix original, and we're getting new episodes week by week. Hmm. And um, so, but then, but for some for some reason, that show is not being made available to the West yet. I mean, it's only available at least in Hong Kong and I think perhaps other places in Asia. So I'm not sure what the rationale is. So the only one that makes sense is that there might be some kind of deal between you know uh, Fuji and, and and Netflix to not give it to uh, overseas you know, to have a certain buffer, maybe or yeah. or more maybe it is this whole binging thing. Maybe you guys will get Love Wagon. Um, in a month or two, and then you guys would get to binge, you know, seven or eight episodes at once. Um, maybe that's what Netflix thinks. Hmm. I mean, they have the algorithm, right? They have the algorithm, so it's almost so you know they, I guess, they know what's going on. But another another thing, you know, is what about Chelsea, the talk show that they do, right? They do three episodes a week, hmm. um, and it's all on Driffy instead of whole coming out in batches. So what's what is the you know that's not really a a a, a uh, a logical explanation, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like I think I said before. It, I'll, I'll gladly take it on March thirteenth if that's the only way I can get it right. <laughs> um, I, I don't seem to. I'm not. I'm not railing against Netflix for their release schedule, but as a fan, it would be great if we could get it on on time. 
with uh, Japan. But, you know, I'll take what I can get because I'm happy to watch the show. I think that the article, too, the author raised an interesting point, and perhaps you know better than, than I would, Kevin, if you're familiar with the area. Um, they said, you know, because one of the premises of the show is that you get the kids in the house and then they go out to places on dates. But it mm-hmm. sounds like that this place they're in might be a little bit remote. There might not be very many dating spots. So are they going to be regulated to the house more often than not? No, I don't think so. I mean, Kaluizawa is a very big tourist attraction. It's a big tourist area. It's not like they're in the middle of the mountains. I mean, yeah. Kaluizawa is a famous place in Japan. And, and you know, I think they'll be able to go back, go around. And, you know, I, I think you'll make even more scenic date spots, you know, I think. Maybe it's not as fashionable as Tokyo, but um, I think it's about two or three hour drive away from Tokyo. I'm not sure how many hours, but, you know, it could do like a day trip back and forth from Tokyo anywhere if they wish. And there are other big cities around that area, I think. It's in Nagano. Mm. Um, and Nagano, you know, of course, each each prefecture has like a big city, right? right? But no, I'm not I'm not familiar enough with Kaduizawa to know. But you know, it's not like they're like it's not like there's gonna be some misery misery esque, you know, shenanigans happening, you know. <laughs> they're not really in the middle of nowhere. It's not gonna, not gonna be deliverance, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not gonna be like deliverance, right? I mean, like I said, they're in the middle of a really big tourist attraction. They could even get work, you know, working like a like a hot spring resort or or, or whatever. Um, from what I see about the members, I mean, some of them are models, which means they will have to go to Tokyo. Um, there's an ice hockey player. And, you know, sorry, the cast is already reviewed in Japan, right? Because the show is already out. So there are some, like, there's a professional translator, you know, which I'm already, you know, ha, ha, ha. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, already, I'm already, like, spotting that girl. But no, there are, like, models and trainee <laughs> singers and things like that. So they will have to make their way to to um, Tokyo sometime. Mm. And the, the area is accessible by um, by bullet train, as far as I know. So I think we will get scenes back in Tokyo in this big city. All right. Excellent. Well, we're looking forward to it here. And if you... Um are also interested in watching it and uh, you like the show, you know, drop us a line, let us know what you think once it starts. Oh, by the way, when I was in Japan, I found a show on Netflix. Um, it was called The House. I'm not kidding. It's called The House. It's another reality show. And I watched about the first 10 minutes of it. And they actually, it's a reality show where they, it's like a direct response to Terrence House where they promised that it will be people being bitchy to each other. Hmm. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It's a Japanese show, Japanese reality show, where they even talk about. It's like, are we copying T T dot 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 the house? And they're like, no, no. It's like a homage. It's like we're paying tribute uh, to that show. And then, that sounds. So I did actually, <laughs> that sounds too much like regular U.S. reality TV for my taste. Yes, exactly. So I didn't watch beyond the first ten minutes or so. But if you're in Japan, anyone goes to Japan and they need you know Terrence House fix, they can watch the house mm. or go back and watch the old 70s japanese movie house house <laughs> instead house. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh i guess the final bit of news for this week um it's a little bit dated of course but um for those that maybe don't pay that much attention to uh, regular news um a, a couple things that I, I i think are a little bit somewhat related it's been the year for corporate wins basically um, and, uh, I think that by this weekend, as of the recording in the States, um, they'll have another corporate win in the form of the tax plan that's going through, but that's a discussion for another day. Um, but I guess the thing to talk about is of course the Disney Fox merger deal that happened and 
long rumored, um, often, you know, being discussed as never going to happen. And here it is. Uh, it did happen. The, um, the, the mouse has really started to gobble up quite a lot of stuff. And with this acquisition, they will get access to, um, of course, properties like the Fantastic Four and characters like Galactus in the Marvel side of things. And I think they're going to get um, the movie studios. The thing they're not getting, I don't think they're getting Fox News, um, but pretty much everything else that's uh, entertainment related is going to go to uh, Disney as they make this acquisition. So, Kevin, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Um, mm. Is this a, you know, it, it's is it a good thing or a bad thing? No, I mean, I saw, I saw a really interesting tweet. I mean, the thing is, this whole Me Too movement, they've been talking about how concentrated power, you know, the, you know, they all talk about how, you know, we need more transparency, right? We need more transparency from the people who hold the power and things like that. And then next thing you know, you got two of the biggest, you know, companies in Hollywood merging into one, consolidating their power. Um, if we want to, as a society, want to you know, power to be more transparent, this is not the way to do it. This, in fact, makes everything more dangerous. Um, and and I think the uh, Antitrust Commission is going to have to look into this, and they're going to have to thoroughly look through this deal, see whether it really passes muster. I personally think I don't like having um, everything under Disney. You know, they call Disney the empire. Right? I mean, it's not, it's not like, a, a, uh, it's not something that happened yesterday. I mean, for a long time, people have been calling Disney the, the empire. And I think they're right because it eats up everything, you know? And obviously the, um, the whole idea is that Disney wants to create as a traditional media company. They're afraid of new media and they're afraid of, um, uh, companies like Netflix and too many companies clustering too many clusters, um, and they felt like they needed to create probably something in response to that or they need to catch up to the game. And the only way they can do it is buy up content. And, of course, they can't just have Disney content, so they went up and, and bought Fox. So now they own Fox content and they own Disney content, and I think that's already powerful enough to go up against Netflix or Amazon. Um, and that will also, of course, hurt Netflix and Amazon because that means Disney's gonna sell, not going to sell off their Fox fox uh content to them you know so there's no simpsons no futurama no um what else no um family Mary guy. with children yeah. no family guy i don't want i don't want to keep saying animated, film, <laughs> animated shows um you know no disney shows obviously because they had a deal with netflix and you know they that ended last year yeah. or earlier this year right um it's clearly because disney wants disney flicks this flicks i guess yeah. um to me it's scary it, it's a little scary, you know, and the whole idea, you know, Bob Eager, um, the head of Disney, he said, yeah, sure, we can keep Deadpool, we can keep making rated R movies as long as we we can we tell people what it is. It's like that means more franchises, more, you know, more, more, uh, uh, um, more safe decisions. Right. I mean, they're going to be they're going to also own Fox Searchlight, which um, uh, it's their independent arm. And they are the ones they're the big buyers to go to. Uh, Sundance and go to the film festivals and buy up indie films. Is is Disney owning them going to change the decisions, change how they buy the films? Are they going to not touch anything as politically sensitive or are they not going to touch you know sensitive social issues or race and things like that? Is this going to affect how they buy these films? Um, if Disney owns Fox Searchlight, 
would they would Fox have done a film like um, Guillermo del Toro's uh, The Shape of Water, which has fish human sex for Christ's sake, <laughs> you know? Um, so no, it's it raises all kinds of questions and all kinds of questions that need answering and. Um, and I seriously doubt that the antitrust commission is going to let this go through, even though under this administration, you know, who knows, right? Yeah. This pro-business administration. Um, yeah, I think it's dangerous. Yeah, I'm of two minds. I mean, the, the the inner child and geek in me is happy to see some of these properties that have been separated out um, come back into the fold, you know, meaning that we can have more collaboration uh and and see more characters in this already large marvel expanded universe um that we've been given um at the same time i do agree with everything that kevin said in that it's very scary um even though you will have this kind of collaboration on certain titles it also is very limiting it's going to be a a very you know economy of scale kind of thing it's gonna probably push smaller filmmakers and 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 producers and people who want a chance to work who might have gotten a chance um because of competition maybe out of uh these already small circles as it were um and and i guess to spin this off into somewhat related news too um and this really is only effective for people here in the u.s um but i i i can't see it as a good thing for anybody really um even if you're outside of the u.s and that is the loss of what we call net neutrality here in the U.S. Um, if you're not familiar with that, net neutrality was um, a set of laws established under the Obama administration that looks at the regulation of contents and speeds uh, at which that content is delivered in the U.S. And it basically said that all content has to be created equal, that an Internet service provider cannot discriminate. You cannot say we're going to allow some content to be accessed more quickly at a higher speed and uh, other content at a, at a slower speed. And this is something that I've always advocated for myself. Um, I, and it's something that if you look at the way that the mobile phone industry operates here, uh, they do not have to follow this practice. So this is talking about like landline, home use internet really. Um, whereas the mobile phones, what they do is they'll give you packages now where if you sign up with, say, Verizon, they'll give you um, unlimited streaming with, say, HBO with their package, right? They won't charge you for data if you're streaming from HBO. But if you're streaming from Netflix or somebody else, they will charge you. That'll eat away at your, you know, whatever your monthly plan allows. And so the fear is that this kind of practice is going to creep over, not immediately. I mean, a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, the Internet's going to collapse the day after. This is something that's going to take months and maybe years as the companies start to, you know, push the envelope with what they can do. Now, the FCC's argument was that this should not be under their purview. It should be under the Federal Trade Commission so that if a company is not following transparent good practices, you file a complaint and it should be up to the Federal Trade Commission to follow up on that complaint. But a lot of people have argued that the Federal Trade Commission really is a very weak organization when it comes to the idea of enforcement of these kinds of things. So I've tried to keep an open mind and hear both sides of the arguments, but I still fall on the side of, I think, net neutrality is a good kind of regulation. And the argument I make against my friends who are on the opposite camp is that if you look at deregulation in the past with things like Enron, 
you know, back in 2000, 2001, or back in 2008 with the banks that are too big to fail. In each of those cases, the deregulation where it says let the companies do as they will without government interference has ended badly. And so especially Mm -hmm. for the consumers. And so I think history will probably repeat itself because, you know, unregulated corporate greed ends up not being good for anybody in the long run. Um, So I was very upset that uh, this went through. I, you know, I I wrote to all three of my congressmen, my two senators, and my my House member. Only one of them responded back to me with a form letter. The other two did not. So I don't think they'll be getting my vote in the next (laughs) election, to be sure. Um, And even the form letter I got back from one of the congressmen was like, very typical, you know, if you've ever written to a congressman, it's like, yes, we know that's a very important issue and yada, 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 yada. Um, but at no, the end I think of, you have to call them, Paul. I think you have to call their office. Yeah, and, you have, you've got to call and, and leave, yeah. a, leave a voicemail to their assistant and, and that kind of stuff, too. Um, and, you know, outside of that and going into marches, I mean, and, you know, marching to your ballot box and voting, there's not much you can really do. The hope is that with something like this, um, there's going to be lawsuits, of course, and who knows where if it'll go up to the Supreme Court or not. Um, but uh, that will follow through in the months to come. And as the political pendulum swings, you know, there's the idea that at a certain point when a lot of this kind of stuff gets pushed too far and people realize that it's not doing them any good in terms of their pocketbooks, they'll go to the ballot box and make some changes. And then just like the current administration undid and is undoing a lot of the policies put in under Obama that a future administration may undo a lot of these. So, you know, it's this idea of back the back and forth of politics and the money that's being made. So it's not doom and gloom. It's not the end of the world, but it may affect, you know, the, the average user and their pocketbooks in the months and years to come. Um, hopefully not, but, you know, time will tell. We'll have to wait and see. Um, and I guess, like, with you over there in uh, Hong Kong, Kevin, you still don't have to really worry about this but one of my big fears living in hong kong was always that at some point you know the powers that be up north were going to drop the hammer and try and extend the uh the great firewall around hong kong and and at at a certain point in my mind i was always thinking that's going to be the final straw for me when i no longer have a free and open internet in hong kong i'm out of here um Mm -hmm. of course you know things happen to make me push that timeline a bit forward but for now everything is clear and good over there right yeah i mean so far it's all right but i mean there's self-censorship and the thing is there is no law regulating um regulating well it, it sounds a bit like like wait a minute we need a law regulating free internet but it's true i mean the thing is hong kong government has a policy to let you know, corporations um, given free reign. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is already such a thing about, you know, we talk about limiting uh, uh, bandwidth on certain sites and, you know, to to give advantage to their own sites and things like that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, for example, my, my internet connection here at home, I wouldn't be surprised if um, now TV, because PCW controls the internet here, if they give um, priority to people watching now TV, which is a broadband TV. Um and and you know sort of push down the speed on you know regular regular uh, uh, surfing. Um, I would not be surprised if that happens, hmm. and um, if that's already happening. So no, I mean it, it's scary. Of course, I mean not just the firewall; it's already you know 
the corporation is already not trustworthy enough to to make sure they think um, of the consumers because corporations by nature don't care about consumers. Yeah, and it's and not that, a it's not a yeah it's not a volunteer. You know, it's not like they have to do it out of the kindness of their heart. They're doing everything to make money. Yeah. So, yeah. and I mean, it's uh, the, I guess one of the bigger concerns here too is that it's not like there's a lot of choice. I mean, the idea is that. You know, well, this is capitalism and corporations should have the freedom to do whatever. But in a lot of places here, um, users only have one choice for an Internet service provider. So competition doesn't work. They they either sign up with one company that gives coverage or they don't have it. I'm fortunate enough to live in a fairly urban area where we have um, a couple different providers. But even so, I think there's uh, three... Three providers. We got AT and T. I want to say we've got Comcast, Xfinity, and maybe the the whoever does the satellite, um, whatever the satellite company is called. I forget. Um, and you know, I it's so I have I have a range of a few choices to pick from. But even then, those choices are all very similar in terms of the pricing scheme. Nobody's really undercutting anybody else um, for to try and draw people over. So, um, again, hopefully this is something that, you know, becomes sort of a non-issue going forward, but we'll have to wait and see. I think that's going to wrap it up for our news this week. Let's take a short musical break, and we'll be back with Kevin's review of Somewhere Beyond the Mist. And welcome back. So for our East Screen film this week, Kevin's going to talk about the new film, Somewhere Beyond the Mist, starring Steffi, right? Yes, Steffi Tang. Yes, that's why I chose... I mean, I've watched a few recent Hong Kong films, but I knew the first one you want to hear, Paul, is the one, the Steffi film. Well, she's had a pretty big final quarter here, right? I mean, because you saw Husband Killers and reviewed that early on because it, it got festival play in Japan, as I remember. But that only yep. got a recent release, and then her... Empty Hands movie was recently released, and so now this. So she's had a pretty big uh, final quarter here. That's right, and it's been a very interesting year for Steffi. I predicted this back in back in March. I knew that these films were coming up, and it has been a very different year for Steffi. I mean, you see her um, lead, no longer bound by her cookies image or whatever. I mean, she's grown older, and, and she's taking more mature roles. And, you know, people ask me, like, oh, has Steffi finally learned how to act? The thing is... I always tell people that Steffi's she's never been a very bad actress, and I think I already said this on the show as well. She's not a bad actress; is that she just picks terrible roles? <laughs> you know, it's just that directors give her terrible roles to play, and actually, she does work hard, and and she's really I don't think she's a bad actress. And of course, Paul, I'm not going to ask you because you're biased. So absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so, um, but no, it's been a very interesting year for her, and um. There's even a joke that this the Hong Kong Asian Steffi Film Festival because all three films that she did in the last quarter played at the HKAFF, including this film. Um, so this film, Somewhere Beyond the Mist, is the new film, the first feature film by director Chen King Wai, um, who did previously did KJ and uh, Taste of Youth, and he also did, of course, a few 
uh, short films when it comes to dramatic narratives, and also um, co-wrote uh, Anne Hoist Night and Fog. Um, now, the screening I attended, so the film doesn't open in Hong Kong until mid-January, I think, but the film's already played in Busan Film Festival, and of course it opened the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival, and um, I watched it because uh, the p- distributor uh, put on five, a, a few public screenings in order to uh, make it eligible for uh, the Hong Kong Film Awards. And in fact, a lot of films are doing that this year. A lot of films, a lot of producers are holding their films until early next year. Um, but they do want to use Hong Kong Film Award nominations to springboard uh, as a springboard for theatrical release to build buzz. So um, the screening I went to was actually one of five screenings, public screenings that was set up uh, for eligibility. But they sold a, um, a small amount of tickets, which I did manage to buy. And in the middle part, the best seats, of course, were saved for a potential uh, Hong Kong Film Award voters. I mean, it's quite a big uh, voting body, actually. I think in the hundred, if not up to a thousand. I'm not sure, but it's a pretty big voting body. Um, so they've been doing these type of shows and the directors, you know, they show up like the other one that I went to was In Your Dreams, the Karina Lau film that also, you know, had the director come, uh, said hi, and then she waited outside the lobby so she could see the voters and, and, and try to, you know, rally some votes around the film. Uh, in fact, so when I watched this screening, um, Chen, Chen Keng White came out with Steffi and with the two young actors and each of them, you know, he said something nice about the other person. So Chen Keng White was like, vote for Steffi. And Steffi was like, vote for my young co-star, Rachel Learn. And then they were, all of them were in the lobby right after. Uh, so I could have had a chance to talk to Steffi. I know, I know Chen Keng White, but, you know, I was like, yeah, I better go. I mean, he probably wants to talk to his industry buddies. I'm not nobody. I just walked away. He was standing right in front of the, the theater door with Steffi and the other two stars. And we didn't even exchange a look. And I just sort of like walked away quickly. So sorry, Paul. I could have gotten Steffi to do like a little little tag for the show. <laughs> That's all right. I, I've, I've been but in I that have. position before, too. I completely understand. <laughs> anyway, so the story of the film. Um, Connie, played by Rachel Learn, is a young high schooler who has just been arrested for killing her parents, uh, along with her best friend, Eric. Uh, the cop in charge of the case is Angela, played by Steffi, a pregnant woman who's living with a father suffering from dementia. As Connie reveals the circumstances, circumstances, um, that led to her committing the unspeakable act, Angela begins to relate to the murderer's plight. Um... So, as I said earlier, this is the feature film debut uh, of Chen Keng Wai. Um, and he last made a 20-minute uh, short called Hilda of Ilha Verde, which uh, is set in Macau. Um, it's about, I think, a one of those downtrodden girls, young girls, who wanders around Macau and weird things happen, that kind of thing. Um, but it's a real surreal little piece of work that I did not particularly care for. Um and knowing that he wrote Night and Fog and he did documentaries like uh, Oswald of the World and he did KJ and he did Taste of Youth, you know what kind of style that somewhere is going to somewhere uh, beyond the mist is going to be. Um, it's, it's very cold and he likes it very detached and gray and it's gloomy and um, it's not it's not avant garde or anything, nor is it realism the way that hardcore realism uh realism that you know ho shao shen does but it is very cold it's very still and it's very detached um and it deals with 
very serious issues, so physical abuse, child endangerment, and and dealing with um, a parent with dementia, and of course patricide. Um, in fact, um, so when I was at the screening, a woman came in with her child. I think she looks really young, like ten or eleven or something like that, right? And I'm wondering, do they know what this film's about? Like, because I know what the film's about. Like, it's you know, they sat down and we started. And about ten minutes in, um, Connie's arrested, and she sits down and she says. Oh, I killed my parents. Then I saw the the woman, her daughter, just stood up and bolted out of the theater <laughs> and never came back. <laughs> you know, this is like this is like you know, you take your son for Father's Day. You know, I'm gonna show my son a good film. No one's show my son something nice. Ooh, how about a, a Studio Ghibli film? Oh, how about Tales of Earthsea? <laughs> <laughs> well, you bolt from that for a completely different reason, you know. <laughs> you bolt well. You bolt from that movie within like three minutes because you know you know what happens in the first three yeah. minutes. The son kills his father, uh, so it's that kind of thing. Like, um, so yeah, it's it's a very serious issue, and it's clearly not for kids. Um, but it's done in a very cold and again very detached. Um, and since the subject matter, you know, it's already very sensitive and it's already disturbing. But the way that Chen King White does it, he does it with sort of coldness towards it. That's even more chilling, I think. It makes it even, you know, this, let's face it, this is not a popcorn fair. You know, this is a very, it's, not, it's an art house film and it's, it's meant to disturb. Um, but, you know, after all these films, as practice, um, Chen King Wai, he, he's got his style down and he certainly seems more confident about it this time. Um, and he does, um, it, it's actually, the problem with the film is that the story is quite small. It is essentially about this case, and you already know who did it by about ten minutes in, um, and there's no mystery there. And Steffi, the characters don't really grow; they it's more like they come to realizations, and those realizations um, after the the act after the, the the murder doesn't really change anything after they do it. So while well, it's, it's disturbing and it makes you think, um, but that's all all about you know that's all it does. It's that um, uh, um, kind of you know like oh it makes you feel bad about certain things or but it it doesn't it's really ultimately a short film that stretched to feature length and I think right now it's eighty eight minutes and I think it would have benefited if if um, Chen Chen Kingwei you know wanted to cut it down to sixty seven minutes or to seventy minutes it would have been a bit more tighter a bit more stronger it wouldn't meander so much. Um, but for what it is, it, you know, what what Jern does have is that he has really gutsy actors. And Rachel Learn, you know, who is a, I think this is her first starring role, her first, her first major role, I think. It's excellent as a young murderer. Um, her, she has this really nonchalant look. The film really convinces you that, yeah, she does want to kill her parents. Or she has really terrible parents. I mean, these guys, these people are despicable people. Um, and so it, of course, you know, it, it doesn't justify the murder, but it gets into her head enough that you know you convinced that she's sort of in this this hell and she wants to get out of it and to her that the only way to get out of it is to kill her parents um and her relationship with her best friend eric who is not a boyfriend actually because i think the the film suggests implies well pretty strongly or, or pretty much almost says it that, that he's gay and and bec- and he's outcast uh because of that so her relationship with with this best friend um, it's really the most humane part of the film, and I think it's the best thing in the film. Um, Steffi, meanwhile, is sort of in a different story because you know she's in a different timeline, and 
you see her at home and she has to deal with this father of dementia and of course <clears throat> the pressure on her is is quite serious and also her, her character is also pregnant right um even though that you know so the poster you see the first poster you see of um Steffi walking walking down the street you know like looking like she's like eight months or nine months pregnant that actually doesn't really happen until the very very end of the film but um the rest of it she's you know, and she's in, at home most of the time dealing with this father of dementia and trying to deal, but she doesn't do it in like a nice way. She's clearly very tired of it, and it's it's almost like she wants to be rid of this burden, right? Uh, so it's a very heavy role. People will probably likely lean towards her performance in The Empty Hands because she does karate and she gets her freak out moment. Um, here, drinking what doesn't give you that. She she has one big moment. Um, but it's not the way that you know Chapman Toe gives her moments in the empty hands, and so it's a more much more subtle performance. And I'm quite impressed by how she's willing to play someone this unpleasant. So, Paul, you may not like this one. Mm. I'm afraid uh, it's not a really pleasant character. Um, is it a great film? No, but it's a serious film, and I think it's solid. And it's not a film that's easily dismissed. It's very different from what you see in Hong Kong these days, and I appreciate that. And it's about a serious subject, um, and yet it's not about calling attention to itself as art. It's a very observant film, and um, it needs. I think Hong Kong needs more of these type of more mature film that is not about showing off, but rather you know trying to point people towards certain issues that happens in in society. Um, so if you're in the mood for that type of film. Um, like I said, it's not easy sit. It's not popcorn fare. Uh, but if you're in the mood for that sort of film, um, I I do recommend it. And I think Hong Kong does need more films like this once in a while. And the only reason that it got made, it's not going to make any money at the box office. Let's face it. The only reason it got made is because this is part of the government's uh, first feature film plan. So uh, first feature film initiative. Sorry, the um, the first two films in a student group were Weeds on Fire and Mad World. This film is in the um, professional group. Which means it got double the budget as Mad World, uh, double the budget. So which means um, the Weeds on Fire and Mad World budget combined made this film. Now, yeah, Mad World is still the best film out of that whole first batch. Uh, but it is very interesting. We got these three very, very different films from the same initiative. And I think it, 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 it's a good... Um, it's good encouragement for young directors that this plan does exist for you to take risks and not worry about, you know, your arty, artsy friends who thinks you sold out for commercial fare or your commercial friends who, who worry that you do something too artsy. You know, it's really a good chance for them to do their own thing. And uh, yeah, so that's that's this film. In hearing your description of it, I guess you mentioned uh, you, you sort of uh, brought to mind Mad World. Um, as you just mentioned, and dealing with, you know, the idea of, I guess, uh, parents and things. Also, a little bit reminiscent of Port of Call. Does it share, mm-hmm. I, I guess, tonally or in terms of uh, some of the, the the idea of the the violent nature of, like, say, Port of Call, is it similar in, in a sense to either of those films and or is it a bit lighter than or darker than that? Um, no, Port of Call is clearly very, very dark in terms of how it, you know, depicts the violence and things like that. And of course, it deals with prostitution. And but it's also done in a more, um, I wouldn't say entertaining. I would say more engaging style. Mm. 
Um, I think Philip Young has a fuller, he's a richer story. He has richer characters. And um, 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 besides Aaron Kwok, he has stronger actors. Besides Aaron Kwok. <laughs> I, liked, uh, I, I liked Aaron in that movie. Hey, he was quirky. No, um, well, uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Okay, but Philip Young was working with richer script and richer story, and like I said, the, you know, Chung King Wai is working with a really thin story here, mm-hmm. um, and of course, diff- dealing with different characters because Port of Call is about a uh, new immigrant, right? It's about um, different characters and and a uh, a really hell, hell of a murder mystery to deal with. Here is not even a murder mystery, mm-hmm. um, or, nor is it really that interested in. It's interesting psychology, but it doesn't waste its time, and it rather scra- it scratches. I didn't want to. I don't. I'm hesitant to say that it scratches only scratches the surface, but you feel like that. Like uh, it could use a bit much. It could use a bit much here. It could use much there. Like all you know about Steffi is that about the father of dementia, and she's a cop. And you don't really know, you don't see anything else. In Port of Call, you see more of Aaron's life, you know, as a cop and the way he interacts with other people in the department. And you get, you know, more life, everyday detail like this. Somewhere Beyond the Mist almost seems like it takes place in an alternate world, in a way. Mm-hmm. In the way that it treats the world, like I said, it's, it's cold and detached. And it, you don't see of the crowd, you don't see the crowded Hong Kong. You don't see the asphalt jungle Hong Kong. You see um, the film takes place in, let's say, I think, you know, one of those new territory villages. Um, and even when it goes into the city, you know, at the school and things like that, you don't see a big crowd. Um, Chunking White, you know, prefers sort of empty canvas, emptier landscapes, and he gets a lot of shots of single characters with things around him, but not many people. So it's almost like it takes place in a different world. Um, so it's a bit more artsy and, and um, of course, patricized, very disturbing matter um but you can say it is tasteful enough to not have a shot of someone getting their skin torn off their face hmm. you know so yeah it's a somewhat different film but i could see why you would draw that comparison it's about you know disaffected youth and and you know when they're driven to extremes uh so there's that sort of commonality but i do like the psychology that it gives to um the steffi character the cop even though i wish that you know i had learned more about her right and unlike say night and fog which um you mentioned the director worked on and and port of call is this based on a a true case or is this completely original yeah i believe it is based on a true case um i haven't looked into which case but yeah i i think it is based on a, a true case um but yeah i have to look into it uh but yeah there is that real sort of sensational element into it but it clearly doesn't want to touch too much of it, so the film skims a lot on the detail. Right. I think, which yeah, which yeah. is kind of the case for Port of Call and I think Night and Fog too. I think maybe Night and Fog is Night and Fog is quite is quite detailed. It's actually. quite quite close to the actual case, whereas Port of Call does yeah. take a lot of um, liberties. Let's say off yeah. the, the original case, right? Well, but Philip Young does does have a like I said, he's a richer script. He has he creates a, a more a fuller world and and has something to say beyond you know what the case mentioned. I mean, he talks, he goes into the psychology of the murder. He goes into the psychology of the victim. Here, the film doesn't go into the psychology of the victim. The parents are 
are scum, and that's it. They're scum. Um, but whereas, you know, uh, Port of Call, you know, it, it, it takes a human, humanistic approach to both the victim and the perpetrator, which is, which is why it's so interesting. And welcome back. So for our West Screen review this week, it is the holidays. And I guess, as we talked about, since uh, Disney is in control of a great many intellectual properties these days, it would not be Christmas without another Star Wars film. This is the third consecutive Star Wars film we've had as a Christmas time release in the past three years. And we expect that to continue, I think, for at least the next two years, if I have my release dates correct. Um, We have the solo young Han Solo film coming I think next year and uh, we'll be expecting an episode nine of this current trilogy the year after that Um, but this year this year we're here to talk about Star Wars episode eight the last Jedi Uh, this time direction was taken over by Rian Johnson and the cast of regulars from episode seven returns um, along with a few new faces and an old new face as well in the form of uh uh, Miss Jurassic Park herself. Um, what's her name? Oh, dang it! I have uh, 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 Laura Dern. Laura Dern. Yeah. So. Yep. 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 Um, I had so, it. I had it, Paul. I had yeah. it. Yeah, Laura yeah. Dern. Uh, it, it, which is surprising because um, it's uh, not that often, at least in this current trilogy, where you've gotten a, a sort of known actor come in who's not been behind a bunch of CGI. So, for example, we had Simon Pegg. Um, in the last film, but he was under a ton of makeup, so he was not really recognizable. But here you have Laura Dern come on as pretty much Laura Dern, um, you know, as, as a character, uh, a new uh, character in the Rebellion. The story itself, uh, as the Rebellion flees an assault by the New Order, uh, Rey seeks out Luke Skywalker to train her in the ways of the Force. This was the final shot we saw in Episode Seven, of course. But Master Skywalker is reluctant to take on a new apprentice, and his history with Kylo Ren reveals a dark past. But can Rey learn the things she needs to know in time to confront Kylo and his master Snoke and help save the Rebellion? Well, all that will be found out if you watch this movie. Now, we're going to go through this, and we're going to be fairly spoiler-free. Um, so if you haven't seen Aww. it, you don't need to worry. Well, if you want to throw in some spoilers, we'll, we'll throw in a spoiler warning. Um, so if there's some things that... Uh, we want to touch on we'll let you know before we get into that so um but we of course would advocate that you go out and watch the film uh so initially uh let me just say that for me uh i liked it better than seven i rewatched seven um a couple days before going and watching this film and it was the first time i'd seen seven since watching it in the cinema um after watching it the first time in the cinema i really had no desire to go back and and rewatch it. Um, I thought it was okay, but I was 
pretty on board with a lot of the criticism levied at it uh, in terms of the redundancy and some of the issues within the story. Um, and I think some of that, for me, carries over into this film as well, and perhaps more so than a lot of my fellow contemporaries who seem to like it a whole lot. So I liked it better than Seven, but I did not like it as much as I liked Rogue One um, from last year. And I know this is a point of divergence with me and a lot of my friends. For me, this film pulled way too much in terms of plot devices from the original trilogy. And maybe for some of my friends, I guess they're not that familiar with the original trilogy. I know for younger generations, it's not going to be a problem. But for myself, I just saw way too many parallels. So, for example, we start out at the end of Episode 7. They've destroyed Starkiller Base, had this massive rebel victory. And we start out in this film, just as we start out in Empire, with a pretty big rebel defeat. Uh, the Neuter Order comes in and basically kicks them out of their current base, and they're kind of on the run. At the same time, you have an aspiring young Jedi going off to a distant planet to train with a sort of crusty old reluctant master. Same plot points from Empire, right? Uh, Luke Skywalker goes to Dagobah, train under Yoda, who's reluctant to train him because he's too old and too stubborn in his ways, and here, too, we have a similar kind of parallel with the character of Rey. Um, and then other parallels I, I, that I picked up on, you have a, a showdown at one point in the film in, in a throne room, where you have Snoke present, you have his apprentice, Kylo Ren present, you have a young aspirant Jedi present, and we saw similar elements in Return of the Jedi. Um, then you have an assault on another rebel base with big Imperial walkers and, uh, you know, a sort of a, a last stand as they all rush to, to sort of do battle with them. Just a lot of points that I felt were done before, and I was seeing them kind of redone here. Yeah, they threw in new elements. It was a salt planet this time instead of a snow planet. Um, you've got a couple new characters thrown in there, and I'll talk about that. You do have some, you know, they go to a new casino planet, and they get into some politics. Um, but still, just a lot of things that I felt like I've seen this before. I wasn't really expecting to see this same kind of thing again in terms of general story beats. Um, and I realized that what has happened is that for myself, I've been spoiled by really good writing on the Star Wars animated series like The Clone Wars and The Rebels TV show for the past several years. And the writing there has shown a lot of variety of different stories, ways of dealing with the Rebels, the Empire, with Jedis, in a variety of different ways that have been fresh and original. And I guess they figure that for the general audience, they need to go with what they know, with what is safe. So in Episode 7, we get droids running with plans on a desert planet. In this one, we get rebels getting their butts kicked by, you know, Imperials, or in this case, the New Order, um, and, you know, young aspirant Jedis and old crusty masters. Um, and although it sounds like I'm being critical, sure, there is new elements here. We get a lot of new visuals. We get... Um, you know, uh, new planets, and we get some new characters. And I loved all that. Um, you know, a lot of people that I've listened to in terms of critiquing the film were really down on the casino sequence when they go to this um, this new planet where all the rich people hang out and spend their money. It's kind of like, you know, Star Wars Vegas, uh, which I think is great. And 
there's this there's a whole sequence there that a lot of people have been very critical of. They said it was felt unnecessary and unneeded, but I really enjoyed that because we're following Finn and a new character, um, Rose, played by Kelly Marie Tran, who I think was awesome. Um, she of the new characters we got was my favorite, and she really felt like she was almost pulled from a Miyazaki story, um, particularly like I was thinking of uh, the the movie Porco Rosso and the character of Fio because she's like a mechanic, you know, she's not a Jedi, she's not even a pilot, she's just kind of like a behind-the-scenes, you know, worker, who, but she knows her stuff, and she proves to be very sort of integral in some ways. And I, and I really liked that, and I liked her arc, though I think that there's a romance that they push on her, which I didn't think was... I felt it wasn't really well-developed, I didn't buy it all that much, but I'd be very happy to see more of that character going forward. Um, we learn a lot about what happened before between Luke Skywalker and uh, Ben Solo. Um, and that I thought was interesting. It paints a, you know, a little bit of darkness into the light that was Luke Skywalker, which I felt was an interesting take. Um, but here too, the trailer gave me a sense that this film was going to go in a very different direction, that choices were going to be made that really cast a different light on the idea of the Sith and the Jedi. But where it ends up, I thought, was a very sort of color-by-numbers kind of thing for, for Star Wars. It, it ends up in a place that if I had to predict a film going, if it wasn't being very original, that's where it ends up, a sort of, you know... Uh, black and white kind of thing as opposed to the the grayness that I think is there which would have been much more interesting which was what I was which what the trailer seemed to allude to and and it ended up not sort of going there um, but this is a Star Wars for a new generation and I think that's very apparent in the final shot of the film which was a an interesting and, and great way to end it although where they're going to go next is anybody's guess because really what is set up is a is a kind of, again, black versus white kind of thing that based on some of the things we learn. So so some things we, we, we do learn, you know, there were several mysteries left by Episode 7. Um, a couple of those mysteries are answered in ways that I think fall really flat um, and really are, are not very interesting. Some have argued that this is a kind of deconstruction of the idea of a mystical or 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 a a hidden mystery behind characters and that not everybody has a hidden mystery that's interesting and okay that's fine but in some of the ways that things are being set up now with certain characters as why certain characters are the way they are i think it's just you know that if there's not more to it then it's like okay then what you know are midichlorians the answer for everything i don't know um so i think that there's potential for more for more to be told beyond what's revealed here but some of the things, some of the mysteries we were left with in episode seven end up not being all that well developed here. Um, and that's fine. As I said, Star Wars for a new generation. Kids are going to love this. For old timers like me, again, they're, 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 they're scaling up, you know, better than the last film. Um, not quite as good for me as, as Rogue One. I think that was a better, darker, more interesting look at the expanded Star Wars universe. This, I think, is more par for the course, and, and that's fine. Um, there's a lot here that's interesting. There's still some humor, you know, if, you, if, you're, 
if you like cutesy moments, the Porgs will win you over like they did me. Um, and you pretty much have everybody that you want to see here, with the exception of one character who did make an appearance, who it's not a spoiler to say that we don't get to see Billy D, and that's a crime, but uh, what are you going to do? Um, so yeah, it's definitely, you know, you're a Star Wars fan, you're going to see this. You don't need my review to prompt you to see it. Uh, so Kevin, have you seen it? What did you think? Of course, I saw opening night, Paul. Huge Star Wars fan. Um, I haven't. I don't watch the Clone Wars. I don't watch anything outside of the main films, uh, which I guess makes me less of a fan. But um, what happens in the films is what hap- what I go in with. That's all I know. I don't, you know. So I have no idea why the other fans are so upset. But I guess um, again, me and my friend, we're both big Star Wars fans, and we talked about this, and and he thinks that's because those fans, you know, they read outside of the the original films and they read novelizations and they have a certain idea of certain characters and they don't like how those certain characters act when they come back to the main main storyline i suppose um and but you know for for one i respect what ryan johnson is doing here i mean first of all i'm a huge fan of ryan johnson and i'm a huge fan of star wars so i'm biased already um as a Star Wars fan, there were quite a few moments where I was just giddy, like, you know, things that you've been waiting to see for years, for, you know, things that you wanted to happen, and and did, and I was really happy with it, and um, again, to, to sort of avoid spoilers, I really liked the message that the film was trying to get across, um, uh, and it sort of gives a big middle finger to J.J. Abrams, you know, his, his mystery boxing, you know, it's like, you know, it's like a magician, who who constantly um, who does a card trick, you know the whole free card thing. Who does a free card thing and keeps flipping the cards, flipping the cards, and he draws you in to watch, to look, to look, to look, and then he drops the cards, and then he says, "And the next guy will finish it." <laughs> he just walks away. That's his that's his thing. Like all all he touches is just setups. He gives no payoff. He is. Uh, almost have a really, really crude metaphor, so I sh- won't go back to it. But yeah, it's like that that grifter who just keeps flipping the cards and flipping the cards, and he won't tell you which one it is, and he will walk away and then not tell you which one it is. And then the whole game is he wants you to guess. He wants you to drop your money and then pay and then guess, but he's not going to tell you the answer. He doesn't like giving answers because the answers are often underwhelming. Um so I like how Ryan Johnson comes in and just say like "f you" to a few of those things. You know, there's a scene, and it's not even really spoiler. There's a scene where Snoke tells Kylo Ren to take off that silly thing, the this helmet. It's almost like, yeah, the helmet is stupid. Let's just get rid of it. <laughs> the helmet is stupid. Let's face it, Kylo Ren's helmet is stupid as hell. Get rid of it. Um, so those little kind of things, I, I like where he's taking the series, and I look forward to the trilogy that he's gonna do after this, and um. And and as a fan, I mean, of course, as a uh, objective, uh, a film person, film I'm not a film critic, so like film buff, you know, it's not going to enter my top ten. Is it better than the films that I really like this year? Of course not. I mean, it's not a great film. It's it meanders. You know, the whole casino scene, like you said, I can see what ha- why they did it towards the end. Um, it's planting a new seed, whatever. Um, in that sense, it makes sense. And plus, they can't just stay in the spaceship for the whole movie, right? They have to go and explore the world. They have, I mean, they're contractually obligated to do a new, different alien planet each movie or something. You know, they have to to look into the world, and it 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 made interesting real life ob- or or current event observations. Um, uh, and um, so you know, I'm not, I don't hate it. The film is long. 
Um, but when you're in the Star Wars universe, you know, two and a half hours, like, it was great. I would just love to be there. Uh, it, it's fine. And um, Lucas, Mark Hamill, I personally thought Luke was handled very well. Uh, Daisy really fine. John Boyega really steps up the game here. And Oscar Isaac as well. I thought, um, um, I keep on saying Cameron Poe, but I think it's Dameron, right? Poe Dameron. Dameron yeah. Poe. Poe Dameron, yeah. Yeah, Poe Dameron is really coming to uh, a nice character. Lord Dern, also a great character. Just some really solid Star Wars films. Um, as for ranking, um, my favorite is still A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. Um, the Empire Strikes Back. Does it beat those films? No, but, you know, those two films have a good 10, 20 years, you know, on it. On The Last Jedi, right? Um, but I will put it around the same area. In the same vicinity, as in it is that good. Force Awakens just a tap below that. Rogue One, I don't even keep it in the main canyon, so I'm not the canon. I'm not even like gonna judge that within the the hundred one one two three four five six seven eight the episodes. I thought Rogue One was fine, but for me, it doesn't. I'm not a big fan of Rogue One. It's okay. Um, it it's it's just not a particularly memorable experience for me and it's certainly not worth 200 million dollars to just you know have a footnote you know it's like 200 million dollars just to say these guys got the death star plans and that's it like to a story that you know ultimately is a dead end um into into the main story for me so i i didn't you know think much of rogue one but this really furthers the saga along and at least i think it gives more for jj abrams to work with in the next episode then say J.J. Abrams left Ryan Johnson to work with when he done when he finished episode seven, because at the end he sets up all these things that Ryan Johnson has no choice but to like either come up with huge huge answers or to sort of. But I think Ryan Johnson went to figure. I think I think he went a clever way about it, and just go like, no, f you and your shell game, <laughs> like <laughs> f you and your shell game. I'm gonna play it like my way. I'm gonna ignore all your most of your crap, and I'm gonna do it my way. And I think Ryan Johnson left a better, a better sort of a better comma, so to speak, right? A better dot dot dot, so to speak, for J.J. Abrams to set up the story for the to finish out the story. All right, we're gonna take a break here and uh, do a spoiler section, which I'll throw in at the end, and I'll put a uh, spoilers big sound blog, just so that you are not caught unawares. So uh, we'll throw some spoilers here uh, on the end, so wait until after the regular closing music if you've seen it and you don't, you don't mind being spoiled. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Kongcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you'd like to be part of the show, please get in touch with us at our website at kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Kongcast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Facebook at East S West S. As always, please follow along with Kevin and all the things that he's doing. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? 
Well, uh, you can visit my. I haven't done this in a while, Paul. My God, um, you can visit my website. I am uh, at uh, Asia in Cinema. That's Asia in Cinema. One word: www.asiaincinema.com. Follow me. Uh, well, the website on Twitter. Follow the website on Facebook. If I actually have time to update, I don't. Um, but I was interviewed uh, last week, I think, uh, by the SCMP, the South China Morning Post, uh, on an article about the Hong Kong, the future of the Hong Kong cinema industry. So if you look up um, the the report by I think Lori Chen, or just look up the City Weekend website on SCMP, um, and you can find the Hong Kong film article there. You can see some of my quotes. I come off a bit like a, 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 a mainland Hong Kong co-productions apologist. Um, but I don't mean to, but, you know, yeah, it, it sounds like a bit, but I'm certainly not. Um, but anyway, read that report as well. Uh, I am also on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. I am the editor, um, entertainment editor of uh, Cathay Pacific's Discovery Magazine and also um, Cathay Dragons uh, Silk Road Magazine, so you can meet my content uh, on uh, those fine airlines and also um, my monthly listicle now, month- monthly IFE in-flight entertainment listicle on uh, CathayPacific.com slash discovery. Um, you can also email me at Kevin at AsiaInCinema.com. Right, excellent. Uh, as always, please check out our friends over at Podcast on Fire their network. Um, by the time you're listening to this show, probably you will have a chance to listen to their Christmas show, which uh, you get to see me fail miserably at uh, answering movie trivia, uh, among with the other Podcast on Fire hosts. Uh, but a good time was had by all. Uh, next episode, I'm not sure what will be on tap, because we are in the midst of the holidays, and I'm not sure what I'll be able to get out and see. Uh, but maybe we'll do like an end-of-year review uh, with giving, getting Kevin's thoughts on his favorites from 2017 or something. Uh, also, in the new year, um, there will be a special sub-series that I'm doing with Kenneth Brewerson on Hollywood on Hong Kong. We'll be looking at some of the old Hollywood films that were about Hong Kong, um, and that'll be a new short sub-series that'll be launching at the start of 2018. So all of that and more on our coming shows. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying happy holidays, whether you're celebrating Hanukkah or Christmas or Kwanzaa or Festivus or whatever. And we'll see you next time. Happy holidays, everyone. And uh, see you next time, everybody. Right, so let's talk about the the big uh, princess elephant in the room. What are they <laughs> going to do with Leia, right? Because the end of mm-hmm. all this, I I thought for sure that when she got blown up and sucked into outer space before she did her space Jedi walk, I thought that's it. Okay, that's how you know she's done. They killed Han in the first one, and this is her turn. And and probably you know Luke's not going to make it to the end either. But uh, she survived, and unfortunately, Carrie Fisher's no longer with us. So 
that's the big thing. I mean, are we going to, what's your prediction? Are we going to get like an opening crawl in episode nine? Uh, Princess Leia has passed away and now the rebellion is in shambles and must regroup. Or do you think they're going to go the Rogue One route and, you know, in a couple years, you know, we're going to, we've got even better, you know, facial re-rendering and, and capture technology and they give us a digital princess like they did at the end of Rogue One, at least for a couple scenes until they kill her off or do they just write her off and say, oh, she's she's in a, in another part of the galaxy this episode. No, well, I mean, the thing is, she died after she, they were in post, when she was in post-production. So there was no way they're going to change it. They decided not to change a thing. So they kept her role as is. And I guess so the, there was the, the other planned. option too was would be that they just recast her, which would be sacrilege, right? No, they're not going to recast her. From what I from what I hear, is that um, there's a really big possibility that uh, eight and nine is going to have a much bigger gap than say seven and eight. Mm. Um, my bet, my bet is that the film is going to open with Leia's funeral. Hmm. Yeah, that, I mean that that seems like a wise direction to go and a nice yeah. bit of homage to, to Carrie Fisher herself, yeah. even though they did have a you know closing credit for her. Yeah, yeah. I think they have to resolve that character. They can't just have her opening crawl to say Leia died. You know, after after the way Han got his big death scene, after Luke got his big death scene, you can't have Leia just go die in the opening crawl, right? So they're going to have to figure out a way to kill her. But I don't think they're going to... I think they know that the CGI is going to piss a lot of people off. Um, they did CGI in Rogue One because they have to de-age her by about, you know, 40, 50 years, right? But they can't do a CGI version of her just for... You know, the sake of putting her back in the film, and I don't think, I think well, they, they have to be careful. They could. I mean, they did that with with um, what's his name, Tarkin, right? Tarkin, yeah. But I mean, that's like there's been decades, right? A couple, of, <laughs> like a couple, there's like quite a few many years, and yeah. and it's not. And you know, let's face it, he does not. Peter Cushing does not have like a fan base like Carrie Fisher does, right? <laughs> no, no. There's a lot of Hammer fans out there who, <laughs> you know. We're we're, a, we're we're just aping to see him again, and I I was you know the the big my big question I think I said going into Rogue One, you know because you don't see anything of him in the trailer. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is the Death Star, this is you know the Empire. Who's this guy in 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 this white with white suit with a white cape? I mean, where's where's Tarkin at? And uh, that was one of my great surprises. Although I do think the effect still has very much of an uncanny valley feel. I think they could have toned it down a little bit, used him a little bit less kept him in the shadows a little bit more than they did but still i was pleased that they were able to to pull it off um, but i don't think they would <clears throat> be well served to, to do that with her yeah they they would not survive public opinion in that case uh because the film is coming what like two years I think? yeah i think 20, uh, two years 20 2019 2019 uh, yeah yeah and and it would be too soon it would be a very much too soon time especially when her daughter is in the film and i think her character survived this film right um you do not want her daughter billy lord to act opposite a cgi version of her mother just you know a couple years after her death you definitely do not want to do that um so no i my guess is that they will open up her funeral in episode nine um or there will be such a huge gap such a huge huge gap like a like a 10 20 year gap that you don't have a deal with her death to say you know she passed away yeah. and then you have the broom boy who i'm calling broomy skywalker by the way <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Broom Boy at the end of the film, he's grown up. He's going to be a next generation of, of you know Jedi and all that stuff. Who knows? Um, but no, it, it would be unwise to to force 
Carrie Fisher back into the film through any type of technology, I think. Um, but they do owe her a big tribute. They do owe it owe her sort of a send off. Um, so I'm I'm interested to see how JJ. There was a a, a, a room a, you know a joke tweet. A uh, a um, a guy who tweeted that you can imagine what happens in the opening of episode nine, the opening crawl. It says, and it was all a dream. <laughs> The Knights of Ren, blah, blah, blah. Snow is still, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, that, um, it's almost like J.J. Abrams would do that just to, like, put the, put the franchise back on course into his vision so he can go and continue his grifting game. But, by the way, so you were talking about the Walking Jedi trick, uh, latest Walking Jedi trick. What do you think of that scene? Before I, I talk about how I view. I mean, it was, it was kind of like, what the heck? But then again... I mean, in the scope of, you know, the idea of Jedi powers and everything, I mean, that's a new one, but it's still not unfathomable, considering that she's supposed to be super strong, even though she's not trained. And I think it plays well, too, with the strength that's shown by Luke at the end of the film with what he does. You know, Mm -hmm. so by the end of everything, when I first saw it, I was like, are you, huh? You know, but then by the end of the film, I was kind of okay with it. Um, you know, it's still, when you go into it for the first time, it's still kind of like a what the heck moment, but I don't know. What was your thought? I was like, I lost it. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening (laughs) in a a good way. I was like, Leia's using the force. I went crazy. I loved it. Like, I loved it that Leia, Leia has never used force. And, but you know, it's like, you always forget that. Yeah. She's a Skywalker. Well, Okay. I love that the film sort of throw away that whole, like, only the Skywalker can have the Force type of thing. You know, it throws it away. Like, look, anyone can have the Force. Don't forget that there are other Jedis out there, too, right? Yeah. Like, they also have the Force. The Force is not exclusive to the Skywalkers. But to see Leia finally use the Force, that was great. Yeah. Uh, it was I, awesome. I, mean, I, think I loved it's, it. It's, it's, it's great. But it also, I mean, when it comes to what they do with Rey's storyline um, and, you know, the the... the sort of crushing the mystery of her background. And, and I have some friends who still say that that's a misdirect and it may well be JJ may come back and say, no, he, you know, uh, Kylo Ren was lying when he basically says your parents are, you know, space traders who just sold you. And, um, b- because it, then it brings into question, you know, is she just like Anakin was, you know, she's just born mysteriously with a super high midichlorian count that lets her use the force and, wield a lightsaber without any training and, and all that stuff. Maybe, I mean, maybe not. Um, you know, we won't know until JJ gets his mitts and, and gets to writing for the, for the final film. Um, but onto Snoke, I mean, the other big sort of mystery MacGuffin that gets unraveled is Snoke who gets mm-hmm. unceremoniously cut in half. Um, now some, <laughs> some have said that maybe he will come back. Maybe he's not truly dead. I mean, because again, if you follow along with the, the animated shows, you know, that Darth Maul who got cut in half too, survived and he, he what? He, yeah, he does come back and, and it is what? canon. It is canon. Um, <laughs> and I won't say much more than that. So there is a possibility of that, but we, the, the, the main thing is, is we, I mean, it was a it was a clever way. That moment, the parallels of that moment, what he's saying and what's actually happening on screen, you know, it it was it was very well done. But it's also like, all right, you've just taken out this big major villain without letting the audience know 
anything really about who he is, how he got to that position, especially when you have the history of, you know, the Empire falling and the Emperor and Darth Vader, you know, them being, you know, supposedly the most powerful Sith Dark Force users around. Where did this guy suddenly just spring up from in the matter of a couple decades? So well, blame JJ for that. Blame JJ for that. He's yeah. the one who went mystery box on him and just go like, let's have him appear in hologram. Let the next sure. guy figure it out. Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I think there's still questions that you know yeah. surrounding that. And with Finn too, Finn was kind of like a big enigma, you know, in his background and how he was able to reject his programming and all that. And then suddenly it's like, no, nope, no, nope, he's just who he was, and that's fine. And and okay, so. Uh, you know, at, by the end of it all, I was I was like okay with it. It was entertaining, um, bit long. I think could have been trimmed up a little bit, um, and I would have liked to see some newer stuff rather than a lot of the sort of redundant plot points that we did get. But yeah, again, I you know it's Star Wars. What are you going to do? They're going to make one every year, so the originality can't always be there. Did you like how they can't how they handle Kylo Ren this time? I personally like that. Like, you were talking about how they take from the old trilogy, but this time, they're telling you, Kylo Ren is not this trilogy's Darth Vader. He is not going to turn. Like, he tells, like, this film it definitively yeah, you know, I mean, solidifies again, the idea he's not going to turn. It's like, he is going to be. Yeah, that whole parallel, you know, she's like, I, I sense the good in him, and, you know, and then at the same time, he... You know, like I said, they end up in very black and white places. And from the trailer, I got the sense that this was going to be... Because, like, early on, when Ray's trying to train, Luke suddenly freaks out. He's like, you went right to the dark side, right? It's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking because it would be really interesting if these two characters... You know, Luke is pushing Ray to the light, and, and, and uh, Snoke is pushing uh, Ben to the dark, and... I really thought the two of them were going to find each other and say, no, wait a minute, we are going to do our own thing and screw you guys because we don't buy into your, you know, Jedi rigidity or your 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 Sith overzealousness and we're going to do our own thing and, and be in this place of the, this sort of middle ground gray. Which again, if you've followed the series, they've touched on with quite a few characters, you know, the idea of a fallen... You know, we're familiar with the idea of a fallen Jedi going to the dark side with Vader. And we're and in, they touched on other characters, like I want to say Ventress, who was a fallen Sith apprentice who actually went closer to the light side. She didn't become a Jedi, but she ended up in sort of in this gray medium area where, you know, not too evil, but, you know, not too good either. And so I really thought that's where they were going to kind of push this. But in the end, they still kind of end up on opposite sides with, you know, Daisy on one side and Ray on one side and uh, Kylo Ren on the other. So, it'll, again, it'll be interesting to see what happens to these two going forward. Any other final spoilery thoughts? Um, well, how about Luke? How about Luke? Um, I, did you like, I mean, there are a lot of controversies about, you know, how they handle Luke this time. Did you buy the fact that he was, he effectively created Kylo Ren with, with that mistake? I mean, on, on, in retrospect, yes, because Luke, it always seemed to me like Luke was never a fully formed Jedi, mm -hmm. even by the end of, of Return of the Jedi, 
because he yep. never I mean it when you think of the Jedi as they're established in the, the original trilogy right you know these guys who are at a school training for years and years from from birth and really hone skills and specializations Luke is none of that so the idea that he would make mistakes you know he would have moments of weakness it really you know I I can really get behind that idea because you know he's really kind of trying to rebuild something which he never was really a part of he never really knew so in a sense he's starting from scratch of course he's gonna make mistakes and he did and so I think that was fine and I and I liked the fact that he's still a little bit unsure about everything you know um, I think people were expecting him to be like this all-knowing kind of Yoda like guy and of course he's not because he didn't have the training um, and so I think his arc worked for me and I really loved the the thing that they did at the end with um, you know the force projection because at, at you know after that initial barrage by the by the walkers I'm thinking wow he's really powerful to have survived that I mean but then at the, I'm, I'm also thinking, is it possible for, you know, a Jedi to really survive that, even if they're super powerful? Um, and then the way they explain it off with it being a force projection, I thought was great. You know, it's like, yes, okay, I, I see that. And, you know, um, that makes more sense. And it, it was it was a good twist, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I buy it and I liked it. Um, hold on, I thought he, he really kicks ass here. Um, and like you said, I mean, why, I mean, he was already arrogant. He was already arrogant as hell in Return of Jedi anyway. Like he was all like, I'm going to turn my father. Screw you all. I'm going to go and I can turn him. I can turn him. No one else can. I can turn him. Like, like he was a little arrogant guy who never finished his training. I mean, as much as Mark Hamill jokes about it, it's true. Luke never finished his training, yo. Never yeah. finished his training. Um, but no, I, 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 I like, I mean, the thing is there is a 30, 40 year, what, 30 year gap or something, 20 year gap or something. You know, why can't we accept that? Yes, characters can change, you know, 20, 30 years, especially after going through something like, like having to, you know, having the pressure of having to rebuild the entire Jedi force on your own, you know, having someone that's out of your control. I mean, it's, it's perfectly logical that, that Luke would have that moment of, you know, moment of weakness and the fact that the film is all about learning from your mistakes and that being the most important lesson uh in life i i was really touched by that actually yeah. i guess my 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 biggest disappointment overall though is they kill admiral akbar and he doesn't even get to say it's a trap <laughs> like, what, are gonna, what are you gonna do you got to give laura dern some screen time right and her character was great too i love you like laura dern's character i wish i wish she she lived yeah. Yeah, her and um, and some people said like Benicio del Toro. Um, there's got to be more there, really. Of course, they don't course, know if he's if he's signed on for the next film or not. But it it seems like if that's all from him, that's a bit weird. But maybe it, again, it's kind of the deconstruction of the the rogue character from Rian Johnson, right? Where it's like. You know, not everybody is a Han Solo. Not everybody is a Lando Calrissian who comes in to save the day at the end. Um, uh -huh. There are people in the, the galaxy who are just gonna screw you and out for themselves, and that's it. You know, they're not lovable rogues like we've been introduced. So, it might be that it's again more of a deconstruction by the director, and if that's the case, that's fine. But some people have speculated that they think there's there's some more there. Um, so, we'll no, I mean, if, 
if you're in a Star Wars movie and you don't die by the end of the film, you don't get chopped in half or anything like that, you're probably coming back. Yeah. Phasma, Phasma, like, we thought that she was going to die in a trash compactor, and then she's back. What the hell? Like, yeah. so, do, do you think she's you back know? again? God, no, just get rid of her. Right? God, she never shows up for more than five minutes anyway. What a waste. Yeah, what a waste. Yeah. At least, we, at least we got to see one eye of Gwendolyn Christie this time. That's it. Yeah. Like, like, like Gwendolyn Christie, go back to Game of Thrones. Or is your character dead already? I don't know. Just yeah. so let go back to Game of Thrones. Just, yeah. just let her go back to a franchise where people can actually see her face. Yeah. Or, or give her something better to do. But you can't do that now. I mean, she's. I hope she's dead. So, you know, her character's <laughs> dead. We'll see. All right, if you have some thoughts, spoilery thoughts you'd like to share with us, uh, you know, don't post spoilers directly, but uh, do drop us a line and let us know what you thought of Star Wars The Last Jedi. 